the most striking memory of that time I had, I think it was Bunny Wheelers was on show, was on stage. And I remember who was on stage, but I knew that the dawn caught us. And there was Mr. Tosh on his unicycle and riding mm-hmm. around stadium on his unicycle. It was something. I just remember as a child, first, you don't see nobody on their unicycle. Yeah. I saw this man on his unicycle. And I must say that a lot of eyes were drawn from the stage to Peter Tosh on that unicycle. My name is Tanya Batson-Savage. And I am Mel Cook. You are listening to Echo Chamber, Writers on Writers, part of the Voices of Jamaica podcast series made possible by the Alpha School of Music with support from the Public Affairs Office at the U.S. Embassy, Kingston. Today, we are speaking with four Jamaican writers, each telling us about an outstanding Jamaican writer they knew well, whose words continue to echo in this creative chamber, which is Jamaica, after their passing. Professor Mervyn Morris, former Poet Laureate of Jamaica, will speak about Louise Bennett Coverley, who died on July 26, 2006 in Toronto, Canada, at 86 years old. He edited Miss Lou's 1982 collection, Selected Poems. Multi-instrumentalist and poet Umbala will tell us about dub poet Michael Mikey Smith, who was deliberately hit in the head with a stone in Stony Hill, St. Andrew, Jamaica, on August 17, 1983, dying when he was only 28 years old. His album, McCann Believe It, had been released only a year earlier. Singer and songwriter Nadine Sutherland speaks to us about the stepping razor and bush doctor, reggae artist Peter Tosh, who was murdered in Barbican, St. Andrew, on September 11, 1987. He was 42 years old and earned a posthumous Grammy win for his No Nuclear War album. And finally, Owen Blacker Ellis, poet, serious comedian and theatre practitioner, gives insight into the life of dub poet Jean Binterbreeze, who died in Sandy Bay, Hanover on August 4, 2021, at 65 years old, five years after her collection, The Veranda Poems, was published. Prof. Morris, thank you very much for being with us here in studio this morning, and welcome to this version of Echo Chambers. Um, Mel and I are going to be talking to you about the inevitable Miss Lou. And so, yes, how are you feeling about being here with us this morning? Well, I am happy to be here, finally. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mel looks down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get rolling. So what was your first encounter um, or was your first encounter with Miss Lou through a recording or a live performance or her text? How did you first encounter her? I think it was probably just through the newspapers. Um, when she started writing for the Gleaner, writing in the Gleaner, um, we used to read them aloud at home, or some of them. And uh, that was when I knew that I enjoyed what she was doing. That was really the first thing, I think. And there were some books that came out after she'd been writing a few years. And when did you actually meet Miss Lou? 
Again, I have to be a little vague about it. I'm not sure when I actually met Miss Lou, but I certainly used to admire her in pantomime because I used to be taken to various shows. Um, I got to know Miss Lou, really, um, when after the publication of Jamaica Labrish and its success, Sangsters decided that they wanted it an addition to be done for schools. And because I had written an early essay that had been commended by Rex Nettleford, who wrote the introduction and notes to Labrish, they asked me if I would do an edition for the education system. And then I had to be going to see Miss Lou once a week over quite a long period. And where did you go to see her? I used to go up to her home in Gordontown. I went first and talked with her about what I was hoping to select mm -hmm. for her selected poems. And um, she gave her general approval. And then when I started to arrange them into sections, into sections in a proposed book, um, I would take questions and comments because in the selected poems, there are some teaching questions and there are also some comments that would help people to know more about where the poem is coming from and what's happening in it. So I would try them out on her and she would approve or would give me some indication of what should be perhaps a little different. What is your most treasured writing by Miss Lou? Which one do you treasure most? Um, I, I can't think of any one thing. I can think of several things that I draw on whenever I'm trying to talk about Miss Lou because they are good examples of what she can do in various ways. I suppose one might pick one of the really best known ones, which would be colonization in reverse. Mm -hmm. um, and I also um, have a special interest in um, the, the poem about um, the one who goes, Pass for White. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and my interest in Pass for White, for example, is uh, sort of a teaching interest and also a writing interest because it's a poem that allows me to demonstrate pretty clearly um, that she didn't just throw these things together because yeah. the crafting, especially in the positioning of the, the rhymes, is extremely skillful. Okay, you know, you've got pass and white playing against, playing against several rhymes on mm. pass, several rhymes on white. Mm. And the ones that are not that actually are carrying the same message, complexion versus education and so on. So mm -hmm. she, her, her crafting is one of the things that I... I most admired in this loop. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Miss Lou had died? No, I don't. You don't? What I remember, though, was um, being sort of one of those who was invited to be at the airport when the body came back. Yes. But I remember that. But I don't remember the moment when I heard that Miss Lou had died. I knew she was pretty ill because, you know, she was in touch with various people, sometimes including me, um, for many years. Um, so, no, I don't remember the particular moment. Uh, Prof. Morris, Tanya and I thank you. Profoundly. Thank you. We thank you conventionally. <laughs> <laughs> and we thank you in the sense of activism, in the sense of that smiling activism as well. 
Tilombala. And for everybody else, that is Umbala saying hello, as only he can and he does regular. And Ten and I thank you for being here. No problem. Yes, and thank you for talking to us about a very important writer, uh, Michael Smith, better known to persons as Mikey Smith. Was your first encounter with Mikey Smith's work through a recording, a live performance, or the text on the page? Uh, just from being amongst Mikey at drama school. I went to drama school together way back when in about 74, 75, something like that. Before before Edna Manley was built. Yes. When drama school was just a shed over beside Little Theatre. And we had classes in the garden and in the shed. It was strictly part-time. That's where I met Mikey. So when you say came in together, you were in the same year group, the same intake? Yeah, we were in the same same group. I tell you, it's like there are some little things you remember that just stick in your head. Some little, not important things, but one of the memories I have of Mikey and, and drama school was we were in the, in the, in the shed beside the theater where they keep all the props, so it's not particularly very clean. And we were doing an improv one time, and I was I was a dog, and Mikey shoot the dog. <laughs> And then he proceeded to drop the, drop the dead dog all over the dirty floor. <laughs> and I couldn't do nothing about it because I'm dead. <laughs> what is your most treasured writing or, or work by, by Mikey Smith? I think we're just saying, Mikey, I have to say the full name. You know, it just feels like that's this is the kind of person you refer to as Mikey Smith, you know. Well, I, I, that's a hard one to answer. I mean, um, you know, the Maroots. I say that because there's actually a connection between Demarus and me. Because them time we used to all write and we used to share with work and stuff. And Mikey come to me one time and he said, boy, I'm baller. I write Roots Part 2. That was the original title of that. Because I had written a poem called Roots, where I read. Mm-hmm. And he said, write Roots Part 2. He said, forget about the Roots Part 2 business, man. He even used a few lines out of my poem in it. But those are the kind of way we used to interact in them time there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that kind of made a connection with me. One word for, in, for describe Mikey, you know, intense, right? Intense. Sometimes we are, are going to the, to the extreme of intense. <laughs> but intense, man, and when you, when you use Patois, and you use it without thinking too literary, that's when the emotion and the and the and the, the rawness come out. When you say intense, it's not intense only about writing and theatre. It is intense. Just one intense brethren man, everything. Coming to school is intense. Yeah, it, it not approached on no halfway business. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Mikey had, had been killed? No, I remember I was probably at home and somehow heard it and couldn't tell you exactly where I was because it was kind of like, you know, it's funny. I think that almost universally when people heard about Mikey, you can't believe it just came in a people's head. Everybody mm-hmm. just thought that. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. It was just like one of them things where just come out of the, the blue and just hit you. Thank you very <laughs> much. My pleasure. <laughs> So 
So, um, Nadine, what was your first encounter with, with, with Tasha's work? Was it, you know, with a recording, live performance, you know? How oh, his work. It? I thought yeah, it was his with work. him. Yeah, his work. Okay. I th- it would be a recording. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was giggling at the first time I saw him, but I'm going to giggle also with the first time I heard him. I think he was being played all over the place, but... Um, we lived up in Above Rocks, and uh, around the corner was the bar. So, so that your first experience of Tosh then was not in home, not at a party, mm. but from that bar. I would say my first significant the- of Tosh, because uh, I must have heard him, but that resonated with me more than anything else. You know, he's a, he's a popular mm-hmm. star, but yeah. you hear about Peter Tosh as a child, you know, processing. When did you meet him? I was a little <laughs> girl and I saw him. I don't know who he was upset with. <laughs> and I remember this just like, he was just, I don't know who troubled him or who, and he was like, this is mine too. He was a certain, asserting himself, but you know, I was a child and I wasn't paying attention and he went somewhere and he was sitting and that was the first time I laid my eyes on him. But obviously he knew about me. Um, no, the se- I think the second time I laid my eyes on him was when we did, when Bonnie Whalers did his show called, and I've never gotten credit for this show, the first time Bonnie Whaler performed live. It was after Bob died. But you know, it was insignificant. I just did two songs. Starvation on the Line was popular at that time. And I remember vividly singing and the Starvation on the Line, and then it was like, um, he performed also. But then... The most striking memory of that time I had, I think it was Bunny Wheelers was on show, was on stage. And I don't remember who was on stage, but I knew that the dawn caught us. And there was Mr. Tosh on his unicycle and riding mm-hmm. around stadium on his unicycle. It was something. I just remember as a child, first, you don't see nobody on their unicycle. <laughs> yeah. I saw this man on his unicycle. And I must say that a lot of eyes were drawn from the stage to Peter Touch <laughs> on that <laughs> unicycle. So I remember I have those memories of him before we spoke. Yeah. And th- those are the two vivid memories I have of him. I never remember his performance. I remember Bunny Willis' performance. I probably was sleeping throughout everything because I was a kid. But I remember waking up at that time of the morning and just seeing Peter just our own stadium track on, on the unicycle. Let's talk about the actual meeting. The actual meet? meeting of Peter Tosh. You know, we're in different age groups and all that. The actual meeting of Peter Tosh that I can recall is that my father drive up one day from, I was, I was in six commercial at St. Andrew High School for Girls. i never forget it. And he said, Peter Tosh wants you to sing on his album. And I was like, really? Peter Tosh. Right. You know, you kind of understand Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. You're a 17-year-old girl. You know, it's not like you're a little girl and you're kind of not processing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm in my sixth form and I'm nervous. Yes. And I go in the studio and I remember going there and there he was. I've only sang background vocals at the church in Above Rocks, New Testament Church of God, the blood <laughs> that Jesus shed for me. I sang the altar. Okay, I'm very, very proud of my <laughs> I sang the alto with Miss Daisy. That's that's about it. You know, I'm a lead singer. So I knew I could sing harmony, but, you know, it was overwhelming. I'm always a lead singer. And I remember my throat was closing up. They were giving me the harmony to sing and I'm so nervous. And then Peter, the patience of that man, I wasn't getting it. I mean, I was just nervous. I mean, the patience, 
the love that man voice did not fluctuate with any form of agitation. Mm. I'll never forget it. There is no thing of impatience. It's like, try it one more time, man. Try it one more time. I think he recognized it was the first time for me. The level of his love to me. Because, you know, mm. some people be like, all right, all right, you know? And then he was like, you know what? Make her sing the high harmony. So he wanted to get me relaxed first. So if you listen to Nuclear War, you actually hear, every time I hear it, I always remember. You hear my voice going, we don't need no nuclear war. With nuclear war, we won't get far. We need a holocaust. Do you remember where you were when you heard that Peter Tosh? I have to. That day. I think it's, you know, I think so, like the other day somebody said, you know, you, you might have been traumatized by that moment. Remember, I went to the States, coming back home to do backroom vocals for Peter Tor. I was excited. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go back home now for Peter. He spoke to me. And like, I think somebody come and said, Peter Tosh dead. I was like, no, no, Peter can't dead. Me and Peter go on tour. You know, I'm going back home. I have my ticket. You know, Peter talked to me. I think I don't know who I called and they said, yeah, it happened. I think I just laid under the bed for a whole day. The disappointment, the horror of how you were taken from us. You know, I was like the shock always of death. Cause you you chat to somebody, I tell you say you go you go rehearse with them and the next thing you hear so them dead. You know? It's a horrible moment. Horrible moment. Came back in time for his funeral though. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you. Doing, Mr. Blacker. I'm good and thankful. Was your first encounter with Gene Breeze through a recording, a live performance, or text? Are you just CR? None of the above. My first encounter with her was as a student at the School of Drama, where we were We started at the same time in 1978. She joined like a semester late, I think, but she joined the same first year that I was in. That's the first time I met her as a student, really. But we know that she was a student who came from Hanover. And she had been working with JCDC before she gave up that to come school to become a, a drama student. Is that how you met her work? It's particularly her her poetry. You met it while at drama school. Yes, because by at that time I, I, she had not yet totally claimed respect as a poet. She was an actress, and she was she was writing different. She was writing songs and 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 poetry as, as part of school work. Okay. She hadn't yet begun to. To, to write with a, with a view to publish and perform. Mm -hmm. That emerged like about a year or so after, like about second year, she began to write. That's when she did her first book, um, Answers, that was published while she was a drama student. Okay. What's your most treasured work by Jean Breed? Uh, it would have to be Rhythm Raving, the modern man poem that everybody loves. But for me, because I know the period of her life that gave birth to that poem, so I know the backstory behind it. So for me, it's just a wonderful example of how she was able to to blend the personal and the creative in a way that she created a poem that everybody loved and it was known across the world. But it was her own personal experience that was traumatic and she made it into this wonderful piece of theater. That for me is her, is her defining work. And would you 
care to tell us a little bit more about that personal experience that she put into the poem? Would you be comfortable telling us about her? Yeah, because she was okay with talking about the fact that she had mental issues, um, schizophrenia. She would love to say that one time her mother, her mother mortgaged her house just to pay for, for treatment for her. And so it was a difficult period. There's a story that we, that we, we hear that she, she had a traumatic experience with an accident at a driver and a child died and she never got over it. And from that moment, whenever something really serious happened, she just, it just triggered and she just became two different people, really. You know? And Gina had this wonderful way of everything had meaning. Everything connected was about where she was at that time. Her work, the name she chose, everything was about what was happening then. Even the name Binta was when we were trying to create new ways of naming ourselves. And I'd, I named her Binta, which means close to the heart, because we were really tight, brethren and sisters. But everything that she did had meaning, was intentional about the moment that she was in. You remember where you were when you heard that she had died? Yeah. Yeah, man. I, 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 I. I was in Edna Mali College staff room, because by that time, she was calling me every week. She called myself, she called Lantern Steins, and she called Faye Ellington almost every day or every other day in her last um, days. And she would call me and tell me she was celebrating things like, you know, the trees outside that some nice palm tree and the breeze nice and the mango tree leaf. And she was the simple things of life. She was finding beauty in that. And she was looking forward to her children coming to, to wash her hair. Her son was in Jamaica, which is not very often. And they want to come help her wash her hair. And she was on and about that. And that was the Sunday they were going to come and wash her hair, the Sunday. She didn't call the Monday. And she didn't call the Tuesday. And I thought, well, I should call her. And then I opened a WhatsApp group and saw somebody say, Jean Breathe R.I.P. And I just closed it and called her number. And her daughter answered and said, Blacka, mommy gone. Thank you, Blacka, for sharing your time, your mind, your memories, all of these things. It was, it was interesting and entertaining and, and educational to walk with you down this breeze. I'm a never born. My name is Mel Cook. And I am Tanya Batson-Savage. You are listening to Echo Chamber, Writers on Writers, part of the Voices of Jamaica podcast series made possible by the Alpha School of Music with support from the Public Affairs Office of the U.S. Embassy in Kingston. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Echo Chamber. For more information about the Voices of Jamaica and the stories they tell, please visit the Alpha School of Music website, alphamusicja.com, and click on the Voices of Jamaica link.